Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. On this episode of the Report Card, we're talking about estimating COVID learning loss. When schools shut down in-person learning back in mid-March, many expected school closures to be a temporary stopgap. Ten months later, there are thousands of students still waiting for their classrooms to reopen. Now, just about any parent can tell you that remote learning is a weak substitute for in-person schooling, and for lots of reasons, but one is certainly students' learning. So the question is, how far behind have students fallen? On this episode of The Report Card, I talk with two experts, Megan Kufeld and Emma Dorn. Megan Kufeld is a senior research scientist at the Northwest Evaluation Association, better known as NWEA, where she studies a range of topics including achievement gaps, summer learning loss, and more recently, COVID learning loss. She's also the lead author of a recent NWEA report, Learning During COVID-19, Initial Findings on Students' Reading and Math Achievement and Growth. Emma Dorn is the Global Education Practice Manager at McKinsey & Company's Silicon Valley office. Since the start of the pandemic, she's co-authored a number of reports on COVID learning loss, the most recent of which is titled, COVID-19 and learning loss, disparities grow, and students need help. Megan, Emma, welcome to the report card. Thank you so much. Thank you. So today we're going to talk about COVID learning loss, but before we get to that, let's do a little table setting. The idea of learning loss predates COVID, and it's it's a little bit of an awkward term because we usually think of learning gains. In fact, Megan, some of your earlier work focused on summer learning loss, which is often called a summer slide. But for folks who aren't really familiar with this term, what exactly do we mean by summer learning loss? Yeah, so summer learning loss is a phenomenon that's been reported pretty widely where students uh, return to school in the fall, scoring a little bit lower on their standardized tests than they did in the spring. Uh, So you actually see a drop in the test scores. And this is not universal, but it is pretty widely observed on tests that are able to compare students from one grade to the next. Though I think, you know, this, this uh, phenomenon can often confuse people because we, we use the term somewhat broadly, sometimes to actually mean test score drops, and sometimes to mean loss of learning relative to what would be expected to happen. So it's not always that kids are scoring worse than they'd previously had, but compared to a typical growth or benchmark growth, they may not have actually done as much learning as they would be expected to do. So we, we sometimes use the term interchangeably to refer to both drops and to kind of what can be better expressed as unfinished learning. So learning that uh, you may be expected to have done by a certain time in the year, but students hadn't reached because of COVID or because of other reasons. Yeah, so it seems like we expect students to keep on learning and you could have a slide or learning loss that might be foregone progress or actually all the way to have lower test scores at a future point. Exactly. In the work on summer learning loss, um, you know, just briefly, is it an even treatment across students? Is it worse in high school or in younger grades? Is it worse for disadvantaged students? What do we know about how differential impacts can come through in these learning loss studies? So it's interesting. Summer learning loss is one of those things that people have a kind of fixed idea of what it is, but the most recent research hasn't always supported that. So 
there was kind of a, a thought that most students lost about a month to a couple months of learning from the school year during the summer, and that disadvantaged students were most likely to show those losses. More recent research hasn't always confirmed that disadvantaged students are showing the largest losses, and some studies haven't even found evidence, particularly in the, the early grades, that learning loss is happening altogether. So it's definitely something that we're still gathering evidence on. I would say from what I've seen, and especially with the map growth data that uh, NWEA collects, we see the largest evidence of learning loss in the late elementary grades, but don't always see strong patterns where it's associated with uh, student characteristics or school characteristics. But we don't actually have as much data, I think, that as people might think to support some of the commonly understood claims around learning loss during the summer. Okay, well, that helps to set up this discussion. And we, we know that kids often experience some sort of backslide in learning when they're out of school on break. And for a lot of students, the pandemic has been a really long break from normal school. Now, Megan and Emma, both of you have been involved in trying to estimate these learning losses that students might have experienced during the pandemic. And we'll dive into that in a moment. But first, I'm just kind of sort of curious, when did the COVID learning loss in particular, become a concern for you? I mean, we're talking about back in, in March, many people really expected this to be sort of a bump in the road. So at what point did you say, hold on, this shutdown could really have some long-term substantive consequences, and we got to look into this? Well, I can say, you know, on NWA's side, it became pretty clear to us, you know, in April that this this thing that we thought would be a week or two shutdown was looking more and more likely that uh, it was going to continue throughout the whole entire spring. And so we decided to draw on what we had done previously with summer learning loss to try to put these projections together you know, assuming that we would be only talking about the spring and then once kids were, you know, that school would be reopening in the fall, I think as many of us naively uh, worried. But since we do see evidence, uh, particularly in grades three to eight, that students, you know, lose ground for each month of school missed during the summer, we put together projections that were very concerning, you know, in terms of how much this could translate when you have that both missed learning from the spring months of closures, as well as potentially starting to forget things. And I would say, you know, initially when we put these projections together based on summer learning loss, that first month or so, I think many school districts were really figuring out how to do this remote learning. Many students didn't have devices, didn't have internet. So it really was a period, a gap in instruction. And that's where I think the summer model uh, was a pretty good stand-in. What we saw, what happened in many school districts was after that first couple of weeks of chaos, students did, you know, the students who at least had access to technology and could connect with their teacher did in fact probably get more instruction than our initial projections took into account. So in some ways, I do think we were probably being um, overly pessimistic in, in using summer as a model for what was happening in the springtime. But during those initial first weeks, that transition to remote learning, I think very little instruction in many school districts was being provided. So it did seem like a better model to think about it as a kind of totally out of school time period. Yeah, Emma, I want to pull you in here and, and ask you about your approach. But first of all, you're from McKinsey, which doesn't jump to the forefront when I think of education research orgs. And you got in this game pretty early. So can you give me a little background about uh, what motivated you at McKinsey to, to do this? Sure, absolutely. So McKinsey has a long history of serving education systems and institutions uh, and of creating knowledge around that. And actually, we published a report back in 2009 about 
the economic cost of the achievement gap in U.S. schools. Uh, and as we saw COVID hit schools across the U.S. and across the world, the first thing that immediately occurred to us was how is it going to be impacting that achievement gap that was already large and was it going to exacerbate that? So we immediately pulled together a team to try and take a look at that. And we reached out to collaborators at Curriculum Associates and a couple of other places and uh, worked with them to work out what data was available so far, what kind of assumptions could we make and what kind of scenarios could play out. And I think one of the interesting things, and Megan, you said this as well, is in the early days, we really didn't know uh, two things. We didn't know how long the disruption was going to be, and we didn't know how bad every month of disruption was going to be for kids. And so we created then back in April and May a number of different scenarios based upon kids just being out for a few months, kids being out through to the end of the school year, through to January, and through to the end of this next coming school year. And also in terms of learning, what kind of learning were students getting? Were they really getting quality instruction in a virtual environment, or were they at home without internet and the device? And to try and come up with a range of options of, of what that future might look like. Let's talk about those projections that, that both of you guys came up with early on, those initial forecasts. Megan, you published a report estimating COVID learning loss back in April. I mean, that was a, a pretty early swipe at it. Can you walk us through the estimates that you came up with, you know, the, the database that you used and the, the major takeaways from that initial report? Yeah, so in that report, we were using uh, NWA's map growth assessment, which is uh, given across the country as an interim assessment, so typically in the fall, winter, and spring, and that allows us to kind of look at typical trajectories over the course of a school year as well as during the summer. And so we, we put together two initial projections, one that said, okay, where are students expected to be in March, and what if they just stayed there and didn't learn anything else throughout the entire school year? And then another that took into account this, uh, what we know about summer slide with the map data and said, okay, well, what if they stop learning in March and they actually just start losing ground that we at a rate we would expect based on what happens in a typical summer. And so we got uh, for grades three to eight in math and reading these, these different lines that kind of showed this divergence that would start to happen between typical growth and you know, the, what we called COVID slide at the time. And uh, what we found was that students were expected to be finishing the school year under these projections, having only made about 70% of the gains that they would normally make in reading and about 50% in math with some grades actually even lower than that based on summer slide. So that for us was you know, a very immediate alarm bells going off in terms of like, okay, how do you then start the next school year if students are, you know, we know that not every student completes everything they would be expected to do in terms of grade level proficiency in a grade, but if across the board students are, you know, only finishing about 50% of the materials they'd be expected to learn in a grade, that has consequences for both catch-up and getting students on track and then moving forward on the next grades levels material. So for us, that really started to raise alarms about what this could look like and what the impacts could be. And Emma, at, at McKinsey, you took some initial efforts to model COVID learning loss as well and, and broke it out by student subgroups that might be at greater risk for learning loss. What were the factors that you thought were going to drive those disparities and, and what were your predictions early on? Sure. So uh, when we looked early on, we basically looked at just the different access that different students were having to the devices and, and the internet connection needed to learn. We were also looking at, from Curriculum Associates data, differential engagement rates of students. 
Curriculum Associates has a platform called iReady, which students log into not just for formative assessments, but also actually for learning. And what we found is that there were big deltas in the percentage of students that were actually engaging with content once the school shut down across different subgroups. Uh, and so when we compared that data with the historical data from the Credo study on virtual charter schools, we basically made a number of assumptions about the quality of remote learning that different subgroups were, were getting. And this wasn't perfect. It was you know, assumption-based because we had very little data at this point. But we basically said that there was a set of kids that weren't getting any instruction. Those were the ones that just weren't engaging at all with the platform. There was a set of kids that were probably getting what we called low quality remote instruction, which was the average of virtual charter schools where kids were not losing learning, but they weren't gaining learning either. They were basically flatlining. And then there was a group of schools, uh, students that we thought were getting above average instruction, similar to the top quartile of, of charter schools. And they were learning about half at the normal pace that, that you would learn in person. And so based on that and looking at the different demographic groups, what we found is that, well, overall, if uh, education was disrupted until January, so that's about now, we were expecting overall students to have lost about or to be seven months behind where we would expect them to be. Back to Megan's point, they wouldn't have lost seven months of learning, but that the opportunity cost of where we would expect them to be, they would be seven months behind that. And that there were big disparities with, with white students perhaps only being six months behind in mathematics where we would expect, but black and Hispanic students being perhaps as much as nine to 10 months. All the numbers of those projections sort of make one gulp. Uh, Emma, one additional aspect that you put it into this was estimating the economic costs of that learning loss. Yeah. Of course, those are also, you know, based with the same caveats and assumptions, but what bill did you estimate? Yeah, and this is where it got really frightening, both at the personal level for individual students, but also for our economy. So uh, based back on that seven months of learning, taking that as a midpoint, we used historical studies of the linkage between high school graduation rates and earnings, and also historical studies of linkage between GDP growth uh, and education levels in an economy. And these things make sense intuitively, right? If you don't graduate high school, you're less likely to get a good job that gets you better earnings. And if uh, we have a less educated populace, we're going to have less innovation in the economy. And so on the individual level, what we found is the average student, if we couldn't help them catch up that learning, would be losing Sixty to eighty thousand dollars in lifetime earnings due to the impact of the pandemic, and if you then ramp that up to look at what's the impact going to be on GDP, what we found is that the productivity loss was really significant, with a GDP loss of one hundred and seventy to two hundred and seventy billion dollars every year once those kids hit the workforce in about twenty forty. Wow. Well, let me just say, I hope that things look better on the back end. And Emma, I think you wrote back in June, these numbers are sobering, but they're not inevitable. If the U.S. acts quickly and effectively, we might be able to uh, avoid the worst possible outcomes. So let's talk about what's happened since. I mean, have we avoided the worst possible outcomes, do we think? Both of you have recently published follow-ups to those initial analyses using achievement data collected in the fall. So that's a lot better database to go with. Megan, let's start with you. How did NWAI's projections stack up against your latest analyses? Yeah, so what we found in the fall was that uh, students in reading were doing better than we projected. So students were actually 
uh, in the fall, uh, scoring on our tests pretty similarly to what we had seen in previous years. Uh, so definitely not as, as dire as we had initially projected. But in math, uh, things were definitely looking worse. Students were five to 10 percentile rank points lower than what we'd be expected. And, and that lined up pretty well to one of our projections, not our most dire projection, but kind of the middle ground projection where students definitely had some unfinished learning. But I think the really important caveat to that study, there's two. Uh, one is those really numbers can really tell us only what happened uh, in 2020. So between the spring school closures and the summer. So it's probably, you know, it's not fully capturing this ongoing uh, closures that many students are facing. The second uh, caveat is that we were missing a lot of students in our analysis. So there were a number of students who didn't test this fall who had tested in previous years, which means we could really be underestimating the impact on the most vulnerable students, uh, particularly students of color, because they were really disproportionately not included in the sample this year uh, for a variety of reasons. And Emma, same question for you. It sounds like for Megan's work, it sounds like reading didn't take quite the hit that math did. What did McKinsey's follow-up work find? Sure. So we also looked at fall assessments, um, the curriculum associates assessments that came in September and October as students returned to school. Uh, we actually found that students were behind where we would expect them to be in both math and reading. Uh, and the top line there is that students were three months behind where we would expect them to be if we m compare them to matched students over time in math. So that's three months behind in math and about a, a month and a half in reading. And again, similar to Megan, this is really reflecting what happened in the spring. And bear in mind, since then, we've had, you know, all of October, November, December, and now much of January disrupted as well. The one reason I might give for why there's a little bit of a difference between the projections, other than maybe a bit of the geographical spread and of the testing, is that the data that we looked at only looked at students who had tested in school. And curriculum associates actually had a pop-up on every screen as the student took the test and says, where are you physically taking this test? Are you in your school building or are you somewhere else? And so they were able to isolate and compare students who were taking the tests in school in a traditional testing environment, which was equivalent to the way kids have always taken tests, to kids who were taking it at home or, or an out-of-school environment. And what they found is that they couldn't really guarantee the fidelity of the results of the out-of-school. Uh, and those students were doing much better than those who were doing it in an in-school testing environment. And we don't know exactly why that might be, but you can all imagine a couple of reasons, right? The first is that, well, maybe there are parents, and it was especially strong at the early elementary, so maybe there are parents who are helping a little bit. I know I have a second grader. If she comes and she asks me, hey, mom, how do you spell potato, I'll walk over and, and spell it for her, kind of not even without thinking sometimes, right? And I won't know that it's an assessment. So I'm not trying to help her cheat. I'm just trying to help her do her work. Uh, obviously, with older students, there's a huge temptation to have another tab open and Google things. And it's a pretty hard even for, for very strong students to resist the temptation of having your phone or the calculator right there. There is another reason, though, maybe students were testing better remotely. Um, and, and that could just be there aren't the distractions that there are in the testing environment. But whichever of those it is, it's not saying that those students who are remote learned more per se, because if you remember, all students were out of school in the spring. And so the difference in the results is really has to be something to do with the testing environment. Uh, and so we really wanted to trust the in-school data where the testing environment was equivalent to the testing environments in previous years. Yeah, I mean, when we think about getting the answer to these questions sort of nailed down, 
you know, we're behind the eight ball. We need more data and we need this to end, of course, for us to really assess <laughs> the the impact. Have have we got any other indicators that have come out that have gotten a little bit closer to, well, what the heck happened this fall and what are the impacts of these extended school closures having on the, the COVID slide or, or, or whatever we want to call it, in large part because, wow, the fatigue with online school that we thought was bad in June is, you know, really sitting heavy on a bunch of students. It's it's tough. I, I know that when we looked at what's happened in the fall, as Megan said, people were scrambling in the spring. This was something that they had understandably not prepared for, right? It was um, and in the fall, I think districts were much better prepared and districts and states worked really hard over the summer to improve access. Gaps in access did narrow. They didn't completely close. Uh, Black and Hispanic students are still less likely to have access to Internet and device than, than white students. But those gaps have narrowed since the spring. I think also if you look at the spring since versus the fall, more students are back in person across the country. There's still huge inequity there. About 70% of Black and Hispanic students are remote versus just 50% of white students. But some there are some students who are getting back into the classroom. And then we've seen the quality of remote learning improve hugely. You know, there's, there's a learning curve to this stuff. And so we think that the worst learning from the spring maybe is not going to be continued. That said, the length of the disruption has increased. And so there's these two countervailing forces that are happening. And so when we looked forwards to say, well, what do we think that might mean if disruption continues to the end of this school year? What we found is that if we continue in kind of the status quo where we are right now, uh, we're projecting that students will lose on average nine months of learning in math by the end of the school year. But again, that there's going to be inequity with some Black and Hispanic students losing as much or being as much as 11 to 12 months behind in mathematics where you would have expected them to be had there not been this pandemic. Wow, 12 months. That's that's a gut punch. Uh, Megan, how about you as far as what you've seen sort of documenting what we might expect from the fall? Yeah, so we uh, don't have kind of projections uh, similar to what Emma described uh, in terms of what's happening this year, but we are uh, in the process of analyzing and cleaning data that was collected between December and January, so our next wave, the winter assessment. Uh, So that will give us the first look at what is happening this school year, because we will be able to track, you know, for the subset of students that have winter of the previous school year to fall to winter, uh, we'll really be able to look at kind of this full pandemic year and, you know, hopefully to the degree possible, it's challenging given, you know, some of the data that's actually available on what schools are doing, because we know that school reopening is a very dynamic process. And, you know, many school districts, unfortunately, opened and then closed and then opened and then closed. But we're definitely interested in trying to break down a little bit more than we've been able to previously, what, you know, what these differences are emerging based on how schools have been able to provide instruction this year. Well, thanks for taking a break from cleaning data to uh, have, have a conversation <laughs> with us on this. So what are the missing puzzle pieces that we need before we can answer these questions? I mean, when will we be able to lock down an understanding of how bad this year's losses or the, the pandemic losses have, have been? And how, how do we expect to get those data, especially when some of the largest scale assessments that we're used to having are, are not necessarily on schedule for this year and didn't happen last year? 
That's a tough question. I think that we are still flying blind to some extent, right? But what we do know is that there's a problem and it's substantial. Um, even the low ends of some of the estimates still point to significant, significant issues for many kids. And so I think that if we look forwards and, and when will we have full clarity, I think it'll be when we can have good formative assessments in a way that we can, we can trust. And those are really important, not just for researchers like ourselves to be able to pinpoint the problem at the macro scale, but also for teachers to be able to have that feedback loop of really understanding what do my students know, which concepts have they grasped and which haven't they grasped, and how can I then change instruction to actually support students to accelerate their learning. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think, you know, it, it, having good, you know, formative data is really important, both at the micro and macro level. And then I, I, on top of that, I would add really understanding what's happening in schools where we have so little data about what types of instruction are being provided. And there are about 13,000 public school districts and they've reopened in different ways. They've provided instruction and devices in different ways. And so I think if we really you know, fingers crossed we won't still be in this position next school year where people are remote. But if this happens again, having better data on what worked and didn't work across different settings, I think will be really important for actually unpacking the patterns that we're seeing. And as, as we look at the axes by which these losses might be greater or less, uh, what are the big ones that we should be concerned about, whether it's the students' experience in school or types of students that may be in aggregate, facing greater challenges? Well, I think our data so far has shown there's definitely some types of students that are facing greater challenges. And this is true also, we've done a review of what's been happening in other countries. And if you look at data from the UK, from Belgium, uh, from Australia, in almost every country, the students who have been hurt most by this pandemic are those who entered the pandemic vulnerable. And so low income students, students of color, some of the international studies also suggest that boys might be having a particularly hard time. We haven't got data yet on that in the U.S. because we couldn't, we weren't able to cut the assessment by that. So I think it is important to understand categories so that we can get resources to the kids who need it most. But it's also to understand that the category doesn't define the child. And so really understanding where each child is is really important as well to, to create the plan. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that, you know, both there, there are certainly groups that are more vulnerable uh, in terms of the student characteristics and, you know, children who may have a family member who's been sick or, you know, have a family member who lost their job and they're more economically vulnerable. But I think they're also, you know, by some of the, the, the way that schools have been operating this year is also going to be a really important characteristic because we know there's quite a bit of variability within public schools, but especially if you compare public and private in terms of who's been able to open in person versus remotely and, and what type of instruction has been provided. So I think both of these uh, things are going to be really important to look at as we get further data. Yeah, it certainly seems from all the projections and just basically, you know, the logic model, at least that I hold in my head, that we sort of have two problems here. One is just the absolute slide. Most kids are going to have suffered in their learning trajectories if we could have just gotten rid of COVID and this had been the bump that we hoped it would be or sort of suspected very early on. And that certainly hasn't come to fruition. On top of that, we have this achievement gap, which is really large. I mean, I think that we talk about it a lot and people underestimate the large size of the achievement gap. I mean, it's dramatic. 
And we've been fighting for decades to close it with sort of meager returns for those efforts. And now we're looking at an event that's really going to widen those, those gaps if, if all these indicators are indeed accurate. So I'm going to put you on the spot and, and, and be a little unfair because I know that neither of you are necessarily experts on what to do to ameliorate these losses. But uh, at the same time, I know you've been in a lot of rooms or perhaps in, on a lot of Zooms with people where these discussions have come up, right? So what are you hearing about ideas that follow from there's major learning losses that we're going to have to deal with? And then the big question of, well, what should we do to deal with them? What are those popular ideas? And which ones do you think are maybe uh, more promising than others? Sure, I'm happy to, to take a crack at that. So I think as we look forward, there's kind of two categories of things that need to be done. The first category is we need to mitigate more loss happening. Like we still have many months till the end of the school year. Uh, and so the more that we can improve the quality of remote learning, improve access, improve the relationships, learn from the districts that are doing it best. And the more that we can get cases under control and get kids back in school before the end of the school year, you know, the calculations we did is that nine months could be reduced to five or six months that you need to catch up. Now, five or six months is still a lot, right? That's half of a school year. Uh, and so we're going to need something that's a real step change. And two of the approaches that I've heard about that I'm particularly excited about, uh, the first is acceleration academies. And these are vacation academies over about a week where students are in small groups of about eight to 12 kids, and they have 25 hours of really quite intense reading instruction. And what we found is in, in those that over that one week period, students could gain three months of, of reading. They could catch up three months of reading. And so if you imagine trying to get two weeks of those across the U.S. population, uh, you'd be looking at about $42 billion, which is a big price tag. But then compare that back to, you know, the ongoing economic cost. If we do nothing, it actually looks smaller and it looks more like an investment. The other approach that I think uh, is really interesting is high-intensity tutoring approaches. Here, uh, there's been some approaches pioneered by um, Match and Saga Education. And these are different from your kind of volunteer tutoring. This is real high-intensity tutoring. It's 50 minutes, three to five times a week with a paraprofessional, ratios of about one tutor to two students. And those approaches have enabled students to learn one to two years of additional mathematics over the course of a year. And so, again, if we're talking about maybe nine months to a year of learning loss, these kind of approaches could really help students accelerate back and get back to grade level. Now, those are expensive because obviously any time you're in a one to two ratio, it's expensive. But because they leverage paraprofessionals, they're not as expensive as using fully credentialed teachers for that tutoring. And so we estimated the cost to, to scale that up across the U.S. was around $66 billion. Yeah, the fixes aren't cheap, but the problem isn't small either. No, and the fixes won't be overnight. We're not going to fix it in a minute. Even if you did that, the reality is, is that if you look at the research from other countries, these things compound over time, if anything. I think people are fairly familiar within the field now, but maybe not everyone on this podcast. There was um, a really interesting research paper uh, around the 2005 Pakistan earthquake, and students there had 14 weeks of school shutdowns. So a much shorter shutdown than we've just experienced. And four years later, researchers went back. And what they found is, is that students were a year and a half behind where they would be expected to be. And so over that period, that 14 weeks of, of no school had broadened to a year and a half of learning loss. And 
the there was one set, set of kids that weren't affected and those were the children whose mothers had the highest level of education which in Pakistan was mothers who'd had a primary education uh, and those students didn't experience any learning loss at all four years later and so again you see a that it compounds over time but b this inequality and I think that tells you where we need to, to focus our resources in supporting students. Megan, what have you heard as promising responses? Yeah, everything Emma said. <laughs> I, I totally agree. I think that, you know, the acceleration academies and making making use of out-of-school time, you know, we can't expect a teacher in a, a typical school day to just catch up a student who's nine months behind. Like, that, it's just not going to work without some additional support. So I think the acceleration academies, the, the high dosage tutoring are really good. And the one thing I would add, I think is just making sure we have data on who's most in need. And you know, these, these things are expensive and many school districts won't necessarily be able to provide these resources to all students. So making sure we can identify the students at most need of targeted supports, I think is gonna be really important. I think the other thing that's critical is these approaches are really important to catch up the math and reading that's been lost. But if we kind of take a step back and think of everything else that these students have lost over the pandemic, that, you know, some of them will have lost a family member, many of them will have experienced trauma, they'll have lost the opportunity to play in the playground with friends over the course of a year, the whole social emotional development that normally happens. And so as we apply some of these approaches, being able to modify them to bring in some of those important social emotional learning elements, really rebuilding relationships with students giving them a little bit of joy, especially over this summer after such a hard 18 months, I think is also going to be really important. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Yeah, certainly school brings a lot of tools to meet a lot of needs. And when you're without it, there's um, there's a lot more going on than just math and reading. But there too, we have some, some big holes to fill. Well, Emma and Megan, after we get another six months behind us and, and maybe COVID as well, we can uh, bring you back to talk about what it looks like then. Thanks for coming on the report card to talk to us about this. And thanks for your work. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guests, Megan Kufeld and Emma Dorn. I'd also like to thank our producer, Matt Rice. Remember, you can subscribe to the report card on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And when you're there, take a minute and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. As always, send your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus. 